As the holiday season approaches, many of us, myself included, are beginning to feel their sweet tooth acting up. Something that you may not be thinking about is how that sweet tooth has played a role in history. Susan Benjamin is the founder of True Treats Candy in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, and author of the book Sweet as Sin, the unwrapped story of how candy became America's favorite pleasure. Susan has appeared on platforms from NPR to NBC, and she joined us on PreserveCast to share the rich history of candy in American culture, from pre-Columbian Native Americans to the working poor of the Industrial Revolution. Go ahead and spoil your dinner this week with PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We are joined today by Susan Benjamin, who has researched the cultural and political history of food for almost 40 years. She's the founder of True Treats Historic Candy, the nation's only research-based candy store. Her 10th book, Sweet as Sin, the unwrapped story of how candy became America's favorite pleasure, made the Smithsonian's best books about food for 2016. It is a fantastic pleasure to have Susan here with us today. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, I'm really happy to be with you. We love to get to know who we're interviewing and and how they got involved in their sort of niche within historic preservation and history preservation. So how does one become a candy historian? Well, I don't know how anybody would become a candy historian. And I must say there aren't that many of us around. But my background has been really interwoven with history and research from the very get-go, even though I wasn't doing historic activities at the time. For example, I used to be a college professor in Boston, and I taught literature and various writing and journalism. And all of that entails research, and the research, especially with literature, is about history. How did the story, what was the setting of the story? How did it matter? And personally, I've always been interested. I did write a novel that was in short stories, which I published in literary magazines that was historic. And it's just, there's something about history as everybody knows who loves it, it really is about stories, but it's also about us, and it's all around us, everywhere. I mean, it's in our DNA, but it's in the buildings and the streets and the foods and everything we eat. So it just is central to my life, but I say that knowing that it's central to other people's lives as well. So with candy, candy in particular, there's a lot of different ways you can go with history. How, how come candy? Right. So I was researching language. I was a communication strategist some years ago, and I was kind of burnt out from it. You know, I've been part of a Clinton initiative, and I was doing a lot of media, and I just wanted something new, and I, I kind of played around and couldn't really find it. And somebody asked me a question about candy. In fact, somebody in Hopper's Ferry and, you know, just out of curiosity, because I've been researching as an academic and a strategist, 
And here I found this untold story, a relatively untold story, that's about North America. It's about the people who live here, about the trials, the worst of all things, such as the reason for enslavement was cane sugar, and the Native Americans' terrain, which shifted with the spices that came up that also became our medicines, which became our candy. And it just went on and on, and people didn't know about it. And I didn't know about it. So it was the best kind of research because at some levels I was researching it using other people's narratives and their documentation. But in another level, I was able to search it and find stuff that was relatively unknown and in some cases not known at all. So if if you could, I mean, obviously we would encourage everyone listening to this to pick up your book, but if you were going to try and explain to them what you think is maybe one of the more fascinating things you've figured out about or learned through this research about the history of candy in America, what would be that nugget that you would share with them that you think would really surprise them? Can I have two nuggets? You can have as as many nougats as you want. (laughs) Thank you. So one is going to be the role of slavery in U.S. history. The reason that we had enslavement to begin with was the sugar cane. And as I mentioned, that became really important to U.S. history on a number of fronts. But the lives of those who were enslaved, as I researched it, were really gripping and remarkable, particularly on those plantations, so much more devastatingly worse than I could have imagined on the one hand. And on the other, it made me see the history of African-American culture as being one of survival as opposed to victimization. They survived. Some of them transcended these unbelievable circumstances in just a breathtaking way. So I would say that's one of them. Um, And it really made me see the nation and the role of African-Americans and how we are and who we are differently. And then the other is what candy and sugar has meant post-industrial revolution and how important it's been to people in spreading the word of love. And I mean, literally, grandmothers who gave the grandchildren those sour balls and the um, NECA wafers and so on, they were really a gift of love that was born out of shortages from wartime or, or when they didn't have money for personal reasons or because of the depression or whatever it may have been, being able to afford these candies really was a sign, a symbol of well-being. And as I mentioned, when they passed them along to the children and grandchildren, they loved a real symbol of kindness and love and belonging and, and all of that. Yeah, it's sort of, as you were saying, all of history is sort of stories and the story of candy is kind of caught up in just the story of who we are. And and love and and so the good things and also terrible things like slavery it's it, it's kind of all intertwined in there so let me ask you this we've previously interviewed um some folks who were involved in sort of like experimental archaeology you know actually involved in in hands-on doing things and learning through doing have you done a lot of that as well? I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned that you have a candy store of your own. So I presumably you've actually gotten involved in the hands-on of making candy. Do you learn a lot through doing that? 
Well, you know what's interesting? I have a candy company more than a store. What I love most about what I do is Hopper's Ferry, but I also travel a lot. I go to historical societies and museums where I give talks, and then when I'm there, I have the remarkable opportunity to meet people who live there and have their own stories. I usually start at museums and then work my way out, interview everybody from elderly Native Americans to people whose family had candy stores in the late 1800s, and they talk about them. So my learning about history is really going to the places where history occurred and then immersing myself in it. And so that's that's more it. The part about cooking, I think making historic candy is really, really difficult if it doesn't exist already because sugar is so temperamental and the recipes, some of them don't break things down at all. I mean, it's not like ounces and tablespoons and so on. So we leave that more or less to the experts who really are ensconced in candy making and that's what they do with the exceptions of Native American because what we would get from say the Lakota in South Dakota would be things like the bitterroot that they chewed or some of the barks that they use which really don't entail cooking but entails harvesting. Having said that I still interview those people and whenever I can and really get to know their culture and perception as well. And we've mentioned it a few times, I mean, for people who aren't familiar, Harper's Ferry, how would you describe where your store is located and maybe how did you end up in Harper's Ferry? Well, I wound up moving from Washington, D.C., where I was doing my um, communication strategy work, to Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And at a point when I decided to switch careers and really immerse myself in the history of sugars and sweets, at first, I started selling to museums. I thought, you know, I really want to go direct and share this with people and decided to open a store. And the obvious place was Hopper's Ferry, West Virginia, which I have to tell you is, to me, the most remarkable small national park I've ever been to. And it is history. I mean, you breathe the history in, your, in the air and everything you look at is about history and the buildings are historic and and it's not hands off at all i mean you really immerse yourself in being there and what better place to open a historic candy company than there and i have to tell you and and this is kind of about history but it kind of isn't it is so gorgeous there that every time i go even in the foggy rainy snowy horrible weather I just, I'm so surprised every time I'm there. It's just beautiful to look at and seeing the mountains and then the historic community there and the area. It's just always beautiful and it's perfect for anything historic. It, it really, I just love it there. It really works for us. And are you in a, a historic building? Was it originally a candy store? No, it's very funny because I am in a, in a historic building. It, it, was, it was built in 1843, but it was not a candy store. And that's important because across the street from us, it's a little street, it's more like a, a little alley, is the National Park Service's historic candy store that really was around, started in 1857. And I do talk about it in my book, Sweet Ascent, but... 
I can tell you just very briefly that the family of the guy who owned this confectionery is still around. You can look at the confectionery as you go around to the various museums in Hoppers Ferry. And I was delighted to meet the great-grandchildren who happened to show up in my shop. <laughs> totally, they didn't know about me. I didn't know about them, but I was able to interview them. And that candy or that confectioner, he was the first civilian casualty in Hopper's Ferry. He was a union supporter, and he was an abolitionist-leaning guy, but wound up, strangely enough, being shot by a union soldier. And he died in his candy store. So that's pretty pretty amazing to me that we wound up. Pretty here, fascinating yeah. uh, candy history there in Harper's Ferry. Why don't we take a quick break here? And when we come back, let's kind of dive into some specific candies and maybe talk about some of your favorites and some of the cool stories behind them. And then also maybe talk a little bit about your book, Sweet as Sin, which may, might make a great uh, holiday gift as we approach the holidays here. And we'll do that when we return right here on PreserveCast. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. Susan and Nick are talking about candy history. And Susan in particular noted how candy in the United States has a lot of roots in Native American culture. And given the time of year, that's got me thinking about the first Thanksgiving dinner, where traditionally we remember the Native Americans and Europeans ate and celebrated together. If there was a celebration, there's no doubt candy played a role. And if it was any real kind of party, I'm sure there was music, too. And I personally am really into music history, so I figured we could talk a little about the music of Eastern Woodlands tribes in Maryland. Before Europeans arrived in Maryland, there were many tribes of indigenous people with complex communities and languages, and while these tribes differed in a lot of ways, they shared many aspects of their culture, like music. Specifics of the music of Maryland's earliest people, like the tune or the name of songs, have largely been lost because in its time, nearly all pre-Columbian music was remembered through an oral tradition, passed down from person to person, and not written. Yet, there is still plenty that can be learned from the material record and written reports of early Europeans about what the music of the first residents of this land sounded like. For pre-Columbian Marylanders, there were really only two kinds of instrument, percussion and the human voice. Some folks had wood or bone flutes, but these were not considered as important. The percussion instruments could be either drums made by stretching animal hide over a wooden frame to create a vibrating membrane, or different variations of rattles made by sealing seeds or little rocks into hollowed out wooden instruments. The main type of drum was several feet in diameter and played by a group who all sat around the drum in a circle and played together. That unit of people is called a drum. Individual drums were less prominent, but displayed their own fascinating techniques. Water drums were made by partially filling a wooden or clay frame with water, and then plugging the hole, allowing the hide membrane to get wet when playing. These water drums allowed the individual to customize the pitch and timbre, the unique sonic qualities of their instrument to fit the needs of the moment. As with all stages in the music-making process, the construction of instruments held significant symbolic meaning that varied among the different tribes. For example, for some modern members of the Northeast Maryland and Delaware Lenape tribe, 
Oral tradition maintained that the way the leather ties that secure a drumhead form a seven-pointed star is an important symbol representing their ancestors. Well, I don't want to talk too long, so let me drum up a little excitement. You can tune in later this month to hear the thrilling conclusion in which we talk about the human voice, the other kind of instrument for Eastern Woodlands tribes, on PreserveCast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org, and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We are joined today by Susan Benjamin, who is a candy historian. Her 10th book, Sweetest Sin, the unwrapped story of how candy became America's favorite pleasure, made the Smithsonian's best of books about food for 2016. And before we took our break, we were talking about some of the things that she's learned and interesting aspects of candy history, where she's located in historic Harper's Ferry, and sort of the the interesting aspects of how candy is really just intertwined into all of our stories. But we haven't really dove in, other than maybe sort of talking a little bit about some Native American candies, into specific candies. And, and I'm curious, when we talk to a candy historian, someone who really knows this stuff inside and out, do you have, I mean, it's sort of probably like picking a favorite child, do you have a favorite candy? You know, I get asked that a lot, and it's really like exactly what you said, like picking a favorite child. So I'm thinking that I want to talk about something which I think is really demonstrates what candy is and, and is one of these historically fluid kind of things, which would be the hard candies. Right. And those would be like the sour balls, what's known as stained glass that we, we carry at the shop, which is just unmolded hard candy, more or less, and so on. And they're interesting because they started as medicines. And they were boiled sugars, and then people would put peppermint and whatever herbs and spices they wanted in them, sassafras, you know, whatever it may have been. And that's basically one of the really important medicines that we have. Now, in the mid-1800s, the Industrial Revolution was gaining steam pre-Civil War, and at the same time, marketing was starting to pick up. So marketing and industry are really parallel and, of course, continue to be so today. And at that time, those medicines started to transform into pleasure foods, into candy. And that was really revolutionary historically because it was the first time working-class kids, as they were referred to by the well-to-do, the lower classes and in really bad ways, like they would call them urchins and horrible things. But it was the first time that they were able to have access to the middle class because they could go into the apothecaries and maybe the general store and buy these things that were marketed for the first time ever were marketed to them, to kids. And that was the beginning of candy as we know it today. Really important footnote is that the well-to-do really hated that. They thought that these kids, if they went out and bought stuff, they would have power and they would think that they could have even more power and they weren't able to do that because they were just the lower class. 
there are all sorts of deaths and murders and all, all of those kinds of nefarious things that they blamed on candy, even though when you read the old articles about it, the original articles, it had nothing to do with candy. And that is also the reason, I believe, or one of the reasons why we have such a mistrust of candy, even though many of them, particularly the older ones, really are a lot better for you than most of the packaged food and certain, certainly other fun foods like, say, an ice cream cone today. Interesting. So we still have this negative connotation, um, and that's all kind of tied up and wrapped up in hard candy. What other kind of candies, do you think there's anything that would surprise people when they came into your store, something that you know normally is sort of a, an interesting one that people are fascinated by? Yeah, sure, but I, I just wanted to clarify the boiled sugars, the hard candies, were one of many different candies that came out at that time. Oh, okay. So they weren't the only ones. But yeah, but they were prominent and they were important, particularly because they came directly out of the medicines. Some of the candies that people don't even realize the candies that they find in the store would be such things as licorice root. And licorice root is really amazing because it did come over in the 1600s with the British. People chewed it as a toothbrush and used it as a medicine and so forth, particularly Native Americans and enslaved people, but others as well. In the mid-1800s, all of a sudden you have this wonderful situation where it's one of the penny candies, and kids would go in there, and they would spend their penny or whatever it may be, and they would buy the roots and they would chew them. And in fact, and I did. I'm not from the 1800s, but I even did that when I was a kid living in Massachusetts. Well, that root was one of the earlier candies. And of course, it became the licorice we know today. Another one, which is fabulous, which people just are always amazed by, is the circus peanut, which is that bright orange marshmallowy thing. You know what I'm talking about? It's actually one of my favorites. My mom and I used to, it's, I have very fond childhood memories of, of eating way too many of those. Okay, so you're going to love this story. So it is of the marshmallow family, kind of. The marshmallow goes back 4,000 years at least, came from the marshmallow root. The marshmallow plant does grow around here in some places. And People really, you know, just used it as a medicine, as, as I mentioned. That's everything was medicinal or healthier. It killed you, so of course it was used as a medicine. And then with the beginning of gelatin, instant gelatin, in the 1800s, they started replacing things like the marshmallow with gelatin so everybody could have it. Previous to that, the marshmallow was way too hard to work with. So the marshmallow came around as kind of like the jet puff marshmallow, but without the puff. So it was a firmer kind of really mm, tasty marshmallow. And then it morphed into all of these different guises, including the circus peanut. The circus peanut was made, believe it or not, in the late 1800s and was used for circuses. That's why they called it that. And it was a fun candy, and it was kind of goofy candy, so no one trademarked it. And eventually, in 1963, the Circus Peanut became the prototype for the Lucky Charm cereal. So we carry all the generations. We have the licorice root, and we have the Circus Peanut, and then we have the Lucky Charms, or, or knockoff of them, without the cereal, and it's just the charms. And there you get a really great glimpse of what has happened to us in our history around food. It, it's pretty amazing. It started as a root and it ended as, as a lucky charm. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, you, you, you started off this conversation by talking about how 
candy can be seen as sort of a form of love and, and, and handing, you know, a piece of candy to a loved one. And I have a little 16-month-old daughter at home. And although she hasn't tried a circus peanut yet, I cannot wait to give her one. So <laughs> and, and can't wait to <laughs> yeah. tell her all that, that story, too. I mean, there is sort of that intergenerational love associated with candy. You know, I guess the one question I have, the uh, speaking of peanuts, the elephant in the room here is what about chocolate? Where does chocolate fall in all of this? Do you talk about that much? Do you carry it? Where Where is it in all of this? <laughs> no, we totally ignore it, and I never talk about it. <laughs> of course <laughs> I do, yeah. It's really, <laughs> yeah, you can't. So chocolate, I recently read, is I believe it's second to caramel and people's favorite candy. But the chocolate is, again, another remarkable story that it originated in Mesoamerica, and was used as a drink, as most people know, and also as a Native North American, well, I should say semi-Native North American food because the boundaries weren't there and the Aztec and others got hold of the chocolate because of its proximity to what we now call the U.S., to where they were living. So they had it even in, gosh, going back thousands and thousands of years, the Spanish kind of discovered it. If you look at it from a Eurocentric perspective, they, you know, went in, there was the Montezuma with all of his wives and his chocolate and he was drinking it. And here's the the bad part for many of your listeners. There really isn't much evidence that chocolate is an aphrodisiac, but we came to think of it that way because of this incredible Montezuma the Spanish, of course, then went and killed all of them and stole their their chocolate. And they brought it back to Spain, kept it for themselves, this secret, so nobody would steal it from them and they could hold on to it for about 100 years. And then through the marriage, intermarriage of royalty, it spread all around Europe, into most notably into France and then to other parts of Europe. And then the colonists would, of course, bring that to Africa and, and other places where they use, obviously, really bondaged workers to grow the cacao there. But it started in Mesoamerica, and it's had a remarkable story. When in American history do you find it becoming like an edible? You know, you were talking about it being a drink in very early right. colonial history, but... When does it become sort of this edible? Would you find it in the in the 1850s in Harper's Ferry? Well, yes. Yeah, so I want to be really clear when you said colonial history. That is a North American history. So we actually start kind of defiantly so with the Native Americans. Right. And to say that chocolate was really important to the diets of those North Americans. And it was in parts of the Southwest and other areas. So the chocolate has always been there. When the Europeans came and the colonists amongst them, they did have, I mean, there's a little debate about it, but they did. They had an eating kind of a chocolate. I've had that chocolate. I actually sell it at the shop and get it from Grenada. They would grind up the chocolate, and it gets kind of pasty, and then they would mix in cinnamon and nutmeg, whatever kinds of spices they had, owing to the spice tray. Maybe they would have cane sugar and so forth. And so that was the first eating chocolate but most of the development, most of the machinery, and most of the ingenuity occurred in Switzerland and in England and so forth. So in the U.S., as it became the U.S., we did have chocolate 
and we did have eating chocolate, but primarily, and this is really important to U.S. history, primarily the chocolate was drinking chocolate. And the likes of, say, John Adams really proclaimed the importance of drinking chocolate, saying it was good for health and vitality, and far better, and you'll get the reasoning behind this, far better than tea. Obviously, there was the relationship between the colonists and the British with tea. And while there were three important drinks at the time, coffee, tea, and chocolate, chocolate was, to some, really the best to have because it came more or less locally. It came from Mesoamerica and was available to us here and wouldn't require any British involvement to get. Interesting candy and chocolate and it's just it's all tied up in politics and all of these various aspects it's it's hard to pull it apart it's such an interesting connected piece of our story so if people want to learn more about this obviously we would recommend that they pick up your book sweetest sin the unwrapped story of how candy became america's favorite pleasure i presume that they can get that on amazon or they could come to your store i guess would be the other place right We're all over the country, so I would imagine most bookstores have it, too. Um, If they don't, you could order it through your local book, so you could get it from us, and you also could get it on Amazon. It's Yeah, it's pretty much all over the place, or at least right now it is. So by all means, yeah, and and that's fine. If you want a signed copy, then um, just give us a call at um, our Hopper's Ferry location or go online on our website. And just send us a message, and I can sign it and, and address it to anybody you like. And our website is truetreatscandy.com. And you can buy candy on your website. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. And if people are salivating like I am, they can come and visit you, too, in Harper's Ferry, right? Yeah, yeah. We have everything on the website, and if we don't, you can ask us. And we can customize packages because it is so personal. And... And definitely read the book. I wrote it in a fun way so that people would, it would be a page turner that people could enjoy. And then I would say there are other good books out there. One is Deborah Cadbury's book, The Chocolate War. And if you are a history buff and have access to something like newspapers.com, then go and just start reading the old publications. They have things that go back really far. And there are a lot of different websites now that are scanned in the really old, old cookbooks and documentation about food. And if you do that, you'll see how they made it. And really important culturally is if you go to those old newspapers, read the ads and read the articles because they really go into great depth about candy. It was really a monumental concern in many different ways. And you'd just be fascinated. I mean, it's like, it's so much, it's, I like Facebook, but this is even better than Facebook. It's really cool. Very cool. Well, before we go, we try and ask the most difficult question for any historian, for anyone who loves buildings and places, which is, what is your favorite historic building or place? So I know it's a tough one, but do you got it? Well, I'm going to answer it as a group. I would say stand in the middle of High Street in Harper's Ferry, and everywhere you look, you'll see historic buildings. And they are just all gorgeous and remarkable. The building where we, we are in from 1843 is just, oh my gosh, it's so wonderful. 
the sloping stairs, the the feeling of it, the architecture is obviously really typical. And if you just look down that street, you can see the ravishes from the floods and the architecture, the changes from the 1700s to the 1800s in a single building. And I, I would say that, just stand in the middle of the street and look. And if you love historic preservation and architecture, boy, you're going to be in a great place. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I've spent a lot of time at Harbors Ferry, and I agree with that assessment wholeheartedly. Well, Susan, this has been a real pleasure. If anyone listening to this isn't salivating, you need to check your taste buds um, because this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> I would encourage them to go out, visit Harper's Ferry, get a chance to take a look at your store, pick up your book, and uh, and thank you for all the good work that you're doing to document this, to really remember this important aspect of our story and, and what a fun aspect it is. Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.